Welcome to Nero Knowledge. Dr. Lawrence W. Sherman is widely recognized as the founder of Evidence-Based Policing, a professional social movement for using more analytic support in making police decisions about the Triple T, targeting, testing, and tracking the use of police resources. A professor of criminology at Cambridge University in the UK since 2007, he's the editor of the Cambridge Journal of Evidence-Based Policing and director of the postgraduate Cambridge Police Executive Program. His research on policing has attracted almost 40,000 Google Scholar citations, and his Crime Harm Index proposal has attracted over 70,000 reads in the first four years since publication back in 2016. He has recently launched online courses on EBP, evidence-based policing, for analysts and police leaders. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Nero Knowledge. Your host, Nick, here, and today, uh, back with, uh, thankfully, another guest, and um, as we go through this, I think some of us are familiar with him anyway and uh, credit him to being uh, the godfather. I know some people say the, the founder, but I'll just call it out as the godfather of evidence-based policing. And it is Dr. Lawrence W. Sherman, um, who is coming to us from the UK today. So, uh, and his friends call him Larry, and we got some great material for you, and we are going to... Uh, get things started. So I will turn it over to you, Larry, to kind of intro how you came into this uh, field of study and um, get us into what uh, what triggered you into the field of study. And what we're going to be talking about for everybody is the um, harm index that he has been working on for years and getting up and running. And I think there's some great material going to be coming out of that so, Larry, I will let you take it from there and tell us about how you got going. Okay, thanks very much, Nick. I, I know you got a lot of Canadians um, in this uh, podcast audience, and uh, we're all uh, grateful to Canada, those of us who had low draft numbers in the Vietnam War. Um, I was uh, <laughs> slated to go to Vietnam. Um, I had actually been admitted to, uh, to Cambridge University, uh, which would have been uh, a fine way to leave the country. John Hagen, a great criminologist, fled to Canada. Uh, instead, I, I became a conscientious objector, and my assignment was to go to work in the New York City Police Department's commissioner's office as a crime analyst. So that was my first job in policing. I thought I would go on to law school and go into politics, but I just got so interested in the challenge of, of managing uh, both crime and policing, uh, which hadn't and still hasn't received the kind of intellectual investment uh, that I think it richly uh, deserves. Um, and I've, I've only become more passionate about that as the years have gone by. So that's how it all started. That's pretty good. Um, so you got, got through in there, and I know that there's a, a slew of material, and we will link a whole bunch of stuff for people to uh, to jump into. But you have a pretty stocked background from... Um, the stuff that I was perusing through online, quick Google search. I'll tell you, people, it is got a lot of stuff in there. That's that. There's no there's no shortage of what uh, Larry has done to kind of help progress this um, practice and, and hopefully this growth on our end of things here in in the U.S. at least too. 
to uh, get us towards that that evidence-based policing model, evidence-based practices, and using academia and research to kind of keep things growing. So one of um, the things, and it is a uh, 2016 research article that uh, I'll have linked in the show notes, but what we'll be talking about is that one in, in his 2021, and that's the, the crime harm index. And I know a lot of people here, as Larry and I were talking beforehand, a lot of people here in the States aren't familiar with this. And as I started reading up on it over the past year here and there with uh, just little snippets, um, can you tell us, Larry, what the crime harm index is and, and how that kind of stemmed about where you where this grew from? Yeah, the crime harm index is um, no different in principle from the kind of statistics that you get in business uh, or economic development. Uh, one metaphor I like to use is that if you're studying economic trends, uh, you might want to know the number of sales transactions per month. But when you're talking about gross domestic product, it's certainly not based on the number of transactions. It's based on the amount of the transactions. Hmm. So a $1 transaction is very different from a million dollar transaction. And, and the same is true with crime. You've got all of these very low cost, low harm crimes that comprise the vast majority of all of the criminal events in any uh, modern country. Um, and what it draws attention away from is the small number of very high harm events that the police wind up having very little time to prevent because they are being pulled away to all of these numerous but low harm events that pose the Eisenhower problem. Uh, President uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower who uh, led the invasion of Europe in 1944, uh, spent years planning and preparing for the most important thing in the war, which was to invade Europe successfully. And his looking back on it, said, he said, what is urgent is rarely important, and what is important is rarely urgent. Hmm. And I think policing suffers from a public expectation that everything has to be urgent, um, which prevents the police from setting aside the time to do something important in terms of discovering crimes that don't even get reported, child sex abuse, domestic abuse, um, modern slavery, human trafficking, um, even violence that is treated in hospitals. And we have two new studies in England showing that the majority of those uh, injuries, uh, which were uh, facilitated by police getting them into the ambulance, they're not winding up in the police crime records. So we're, we're not tracking, we're not using the, the triple T of evidence-based policing uh, to track uh, the crimes that are occurring because we don't spend money on trying to get more work. We rely on the victims and witnesses to, um, to tell us about crime, but they don't. And we've known that for 50 yeah. years through victimization surveys. So we've just got to go back to the fundamentals of what are we trying to achieve? What does profit and loss mean in the police or public health sector for public health, it's mortality rates, it's disease rates, uh, and they've got a pretty good model for us to follow. That's what we're trying to do with the crime harm index. Yeah, I know there's a lot of analysts that I think that share in a sense that um, being disgruntled, I guess, in a, a, a way to put it in terms of the lack of a universal um, measure basically outside of giving those numbers and problem uh, as we see we're having here in the states is that some of that information we're tracking doesn't have that universal uh, measure and aspect to it that provides uh, 
a better level of clarity uh, on what is truly going on. I think actually the medical industry, as you were just talking about, is a great example of it. Um, but we'll just uh, we'll continue in before I <laughs> go off on a separate tangent. So with this 2016 study, uh, over 70,000 reads on this at this point in time, and, and hopefully that just has continued to grow and will grow, um, especially now with this new study. But being that all crimes are not created equal, what what is the setup in order to really to start in, um, creating for an agency or for uh, a nation's agencies the crime harm index? Is there a, a means in which to get there? Yeah, I think the means start with what is legitimate and dem- democratic in any uh, local uh, political entity, whether it's a state, whether it's a, a country. Um, what um, you you do basically with the crime harm index is to accept that all crimes are not created equal, and you look for a reliable metric, like a scale, to weigh the seriousness of a crime uh, and to do so consistently so that instead of adding up the number of crimes weighted equally, you add up all the weight of all of the crimes and you can tell whether the total amount of harm uh, or you know, punishable moral outrage uh, that is represented, for example, by day's imprisonment in the sentencing guidelines, is that going up or down uh, across all crimes as opposed to the number of crimes or even the number uh, of criminals? So it's, it's this idea of having a weighted measure of how much harm or seriousness of crime there is, not only in one community from year to year, uh, but across communities and across offenders. So how much more dangerous is this offender than that offender? Usually we just count the number of crimes they committed. But the research now shows that people with high frequency of crime tend to have low seriousness. And people with high seriousness of crime tend to have low frequency. Hmm. So you can't use frequency for an individual offender to measure how harmful they are. You've got to take the frequency times the amount of punishment recommended uh, or or usually sentenced for each of those kinds of crimes and, and add it up across all of the offenders or all of the victims um, or all of the places uh, in a community. So with our hotspots, we know that we're not only getting uh, most of the crimes in a small number of places, but even more concentrated is most of the harm in a community is in a very small number of places, places that the police should be arguably spending a lot more time in than they are. And, th- and that's the sort of value of crime harm index it gives you a whole new way to think about police strategy with offenders with victims and with places that you wouldn't get to if you're just counting crimes as if they're created equal yeah i think that's a a great piece and i know some analysts work with um, some weighted measures to some degree and and piece that together usually more so uh, in terms of of their top offenders let's say Um, but frequency probably does play a part as well as the uh, most recent time in which they have dealt with that offender, um, having obviously more weight, adding more merit in a sense to uh, the possibility of putting them to the top of the list. But um, there's in this 2016, uh, you speak of this three-prong method in order to get to this crime harm index. What are those three prongs and can you go through what uh, how each of them pull into and create that crime harm index factor 
Yeah, it's really a question of what kind of scale you want to have. I and mean, you go to a, a hardware store, you can get a scale that will give you your weight in pounds. It might give you your weight in meters. Uh, k- k- sorry, um, kilograms. Uh, I, I've been in England not long enough <laughs> to convert myself to metrics yet. But um, with respect to a crime severity score, which uh, was uh, the, the first in the world to be published uh, as an official act of government, was in Canada. Uh, which since 2007 has published the crime severity score based on the actual sentences that are applied by judges for offenses in that category. Um, and they take a five-year, multi-year average, and they, they can occasionally change it, which means that it's not a constant metric, um, but uh, that affects the reliability of it. It doesn't affect the uh, legitimacy of it because it's coming from what the courts are doing under a democratic government by which the judges uh, serve to protect the rule of law. So Mm. the Canadian method has lots of advantages. The major disadvantage is that judges in different um, uh, provinces in Canada um, may uh, have consistently different weightings for different um, uh, crime categories. Uh, But moreover, uh, the offenders they're sentencing typically have long records. Um, and the certainly for the more serious crimes, that's pretty often the case. And what are you measuring then? Are you measuring the seriousness of the offender or are you measuring the seriousness of the offense? Hmm. And what I often say about that is if I get murdered, I'm just as dead as if I get murdered by a first offender uh, or as if I get murdered by a career criminal. Uh, right. And so if you want to measure the harm of the offense, you look at the murder and not at the murderer. Uh, so I disagree with the premise of both the Canadian and now the English Office of National Statistics System of looking at the average sentence for a burglary, the average sentence for a car theft, and making that the metric, um, even though it's democratic and it's low cost because they publish it every year. You can look it up. Uh, anybody can create their own spreadsheet by simply looking at uh, these two scales that are published by the government in England and Canada, uh, respectively. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do the same thing if they were published in the U.S., but they're not, to my knowledge, um, and they're not published in Western Australia, where the only thing they could do was to get the data and look at the average sentence for first offenders in those crimes because then they can pull out the influence of prior record and look at the pure value of the offense type uh, up to a point because they might even be discounting the sentence because it's a first offender so there's still some measure of the uh, the sort of moral um, uh, de- damnation of the offender as opposed to of the offense right what what i think is is really important here is to recognize that if you don't have a reliable method, statistically speaking, um, your measures won't be as useful as they would be uh, if you have a method that keeps changing over time. So especially if you're looking at an offender's record that that could span three decades, and if the the average punishment was different in 1975 from what it is in 2005 or 2015, uh, that makes it unreliable over time. Fortunately, most of the offenders and most of the offenses are fairly young, uh, so you only go back a decade or so in terms of what the punishments have been. 
the sentencing guidelines in England, uh, in Minnesota, in California, in lots of places, approach it very differently. They're, they're looking at the principle of how each crime relates to all other crimes, and they approach their assessment differently from how a judge would sentence in a particular case because they're looking at consistent um, things that are revealed by having all offenses on the table. I'll give you a prime example. In England, the Daily Mail went crazy when uh, it turned out judges were sentencing um, much more severely for uh, the criminal abuse of um, uh, females than of males under the age of 10. Hmm. Uh, whereas, whereas a principled sentencing guideline would say you can't be gender specific in applying the punishment. Right. Uh, the harm should be, you know, people are equal across gender and there shouldn't be a kind of cultural bias for one of the, one being more serious than the other. And if judges think about that, they agree. But if they sentence case by case, that's the sort of bias yeah. that enters into it. So that's why we strongly advocate where possible the use of sentencing guidelines. And if you don't have sentencing guidelines, the use of average sentences for first offenders, uh, knowing that that may still have. Uh, problems. Incidentally, in Denmark, they use prosecutorial guidelines for what sentence to ask for. So there's no judicial sentencing guidelines, but there's an internal document uh, approved through the Minister of Justice for the, the prosecution uh, tariff that they seek for robberies versus burglaries and car thefts. Jeez. Yeah, it gets kind of, uh, <laughs> can get kind of loaded, just like you're saying, when, when it becomes subjective at that point. Um, so always... I find it interesting that it's always seemingly tough to take something that is, uh, even though laws are written, um, but yet interpreted, something that can be so qualitative and attempt to quantify in order to to get us to a point of of studying and doing research. Um, so uh, well, yeah. and, and none of these methods are perfect. Yeah, uh, I think the point is not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, right. No matter what your subjective method is to put them in some sort of waiting, it's so much better than treating a shoplifting as equal to a murder. Uh, so yes. that's just why, for an analytic purpose, uh, you want to get reliability if you can. But most of all, you want to have some system of waiting that is transparent, that everybody can check your, your math on and make sure that you're comparing two offenders uh, under the same metric, using the same scale, and saying this one has done a whole lot more harm in his life than this one. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very well put. That's always tough. I mean, we uh, at my own agency I work with currently, we are trying to move forward with being proactive, and uh, it's a smaller agency, and trying to find some of these uh, tests because some of the younger officers recognize that. Uh, changes need to be made, but attempting to quantify some of their um, practices are always something that is is tough to kind of wrap the head around. I think you, you said that beautifully with the fact that it's not going to be perfect anyway, right? Trying to to chase that down. Um, yeah, and Nick, uh, you mentioned proactive. Uh, you know, that's one of the biggest issues in the Cambridge Harm Index approach, which uh, is kind of hard to sell initially. Uh, especially to proactive police officers in things like drug enforcement or traffic enforcement, because they feel it somehow disvalues what they do. But the problem is that if you put the traffic offenses that are detected, or the you know with speed cameras or or patrols, or the drug offenses that are detected through good drug investigations, 
what you're doing is conflating the occurrence of crime in society that puts victims at risk, like burglary, robbery, um, attempted murder, and all of that gets reported by victims or witnesses. Mm -hmm. You're conflating that with the police work that is required to go out and discover crimes that no victim or witness is going to report. And uh, the perverse incentive is for police not to do proactive work because it simply drives up the crime count. And we don't want to drive up the crime count, but gee, we've got to do proactive policing to make the community safer. Mm -hmm. So that's what our recent recommendation, the 2020 consensus statement on the Crime Harm Index. We have all these uh, chief constables, former commissioners of Scotland Yard, statisticians, as well as criminologists agreeing we need to peel out proactive police enforcement from the crime statistics and have a proactive policing index, which stands alongside the crime harm index, but it allows you to drive down the crime harm index by driving up the proactive policing index. And this is not difficult to do. Any analyst in any police agency of any size could break out the things that are currently being counted and arrange them in a weighted index but separately for victim and witness reported crime on the one hand and proactively generated police detection crime on the other hand. Yeah, I think I think you're right in the sense that um, it can definitely be separated. So just so everybody um, gets a good understanding, the crime harm index is purely pulled from a, a reactionary policing standpoint, right? So you have to have somebody who's reporting either as a victim or witness of something that has taken a crime that has taken place, correct? Absolutely. You want to be sure that when somebody calls the police about a crime, that the bias is to write it down, yeah. uh, even if you later determine it didn't occur. And that's why the, uh, the police forces in England all have crime registrars whose job it is to, to track that. Uh, on a regular basis, then Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary uh, tracks it. So if you're reactive uh, in, in a comprehensive way of at least writing down the reports, it doesn't mean you have to send a police car to every one of those things. Mm -hmm. That's why there's all these new innovations in not only having online reporting, which strikes people as kind of cold and unemotional, but yeah. Humberside Police just launched a secure video platform for victims to talk to the police. Hmm. Uh, and you can get facial expressions, you can record the interview, uh, and right from the get-go, you, you can build in uh, a reactive police uh, tracking of what's going on with individual victims uh, or even offenders without necessarily having to send police cars out. Right. So it gives you more time to put into the analysis of where the problems are to predict and prevent by proactive policing the serious harm in the community that would help to drive down the total community crime harm index value even while you drive up the proactive police <laughs> i only laugh because the uh i was speaking to an analyst earlier today and she works at a, a larger agency solo and um, she was wrapping up a 21 page monthly report uh basically of, of what was has been going on uh, I, believe for or just wrapping up september's for the end of october obviously um and then that transpires from there but i'm sure some listeners are going oh my god my chief's going to hear this and now i need to do even more uh, like another 20 pages because these are all broken out into reactive versus proactive policing because now i have the crime harms index that they want me to do plus the proactive aspect and uh i mean obviously as things shift it, it will change and grow but 
uh, again, these, these podcasts and, and speaking with um, people like yourself there is, is the purpose of, of trying to get people to understand what there is and to make it, um, make it get to a point of servicing the public, right? Reducing those harms. And well, we can, we can help with that, Nick. We, yeah. we can, uh, we can offer, uh, our online courses, uh, for, uh, not only how to do it, but why it's important and to help people explain it to the point where instead of sending police cars out to stolen bicycles from unlocked garages, mm-hmm. you could hire a second analyst to, uh, make much better use of uh, the other 25 to 2,500 police officers you have in your police force right. because it's better targeted police work yes. where it can make the most difference. And so actually one of the things that we're involved with in this uh, online course for evidence-based policing analysts is trying to create a rationale to uh, double, triple, quadruple the analytic capacity, the people who are doing this kind of work uh, not only to to be counting the crime, but also to be using predictive algorithms to forecast not just places, but also to be updating uh, with digital tracking the most dangerous people in the community at any given time, the most vulnerable victims. We found in Dorset that three and a half percent of the victims, sorry, three and three quarters percent of the victims accounted for 85 percent of the harm. And nobody was paying special attention to those victims because they didn't surface from standard crime analysis. It's only by using a crime harm index that you can really understand who's suffering the most in the community, who do the police have the greatest capacity to help, or or how can they make the biggest difference. That's why people go into policing. They want to make a difference. And the crime harm index plus the analysis gives them a better way to make a difference and not, I must say, in going to a counterfeit bill for $20 uh, at a local store where four officers got involved in something that, from a crime harm index standpoint, was virtually off the radar screen. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it's been tearing apart policing all over the world since May 25th. Uh, and it might have been prevented by using crime harm index values to manage the control room and to decide what jobs to send police out to and what jobs not to send police out to. See, the, the implications of using crime harm index and of analysts managing them are very broad for all dimensions of policing, including the uh, reception the police will receive when they come to a scene, which is always going to be better if it's a more serious event than where it's a kind of contested dispute uh, event. And just yesterday, a major police chief in England called on the government to say, we can't send police to every domestic call because we are not relationship managers. Mm. We have to manage violence. And the vast majority of these calls are not about violence. And and boy, 20 years ago, you would have been shot, drawn, and quartered. But we're having a serious and adult discussion about resource management. And, and we know that the women who are most at risk of getting murdered uh, are below the radar screen. We might be able to spot more of them or spot the, the small percentage of offenders who've been to prison for domestic violence. They're much higher risk to kill people. But you've got to have proactive analytic work to be able to do the proactive policing that can pre- literally prevent murder. So mm-hmm. I don't, I, I'm not worried about the short-run transition from how many pages the monthly report's got to be. I think we've got to think big about how we're going to build a safer society with less and less sort of informal social control holding us together in, in more diverse societies. We've got to rely on the police to ration, if you will, 
their scarce resources where they will do the most good, just as the National Health uh, Service does uh, in England with the management of, of disease and, um, uh, and, and preventive medicine. Yeah, and, I th- and that's exactly, I'm glad you brought all of that up because that's exactly kind of where I was driving for was, um, yeah, because I've said it to different analysts, I've said it to my chief before, What what is it that we're trying to affect, right? What is the change? What is it that we're focusing on to serve the public? What What is our job, basically, and how are we going to get there? Because uh, unfortunately, still in the States, that analytical process, that um, that implement uh, implementation of analysts within police departments, um, just still isn't isn't there, and it's a long, personally, a long ways away from what I can see, unfortunately, at, at this time. And to get there is going to be a, a cultural change, and just like you're saying, it's an it's an adult conversation because. With the limited resources, what can we really address and how should we go about addressing it is all going to come from, you know, analyzing what we have, the information that's there and working with academia in order to find out what practices um, are working in order to achieve, you know, kind of that that optimal goal of what we're trying to get done. Um and so you spoke of a, a, a course. Is that now something that's offered in Cambridge? Is that online? Is that live? Is that through um, something that you're doing yourself? Can you speak a little bit more to that course you were talking about? Sure. The Cambridge Center for Evidence-Based Policing, which has been doing in-person training in police forces uh, from India to Trinidad uh, to uh uh, various uh, venues in the UK and certainly at Cambridge where we bring people in for a week at a time. All of that came to a crashing halt in March of 2020 mm. and we moved as quickly as we could to to get our content online and to do it in two versions. One is for the analysts who get live tutoring for um, Excel management of more complex, uh, more complex analysis that uses crime harm index Um, It can use any index you want to apply to it. We've been using examples from New South Wales, Sydney Police, for example. Um, But using the Cambridge Crime Harm Index, we could use uh, any other that you can program into the spreadsheet. Uh, But we we take the analysts through all that so they can develop um, the analytic framework uh, for uh, places, for offenders, for victims, and uh, look at how that can change in terms of rank ordered targeting lists um, so that the resources that police invest in various targets are proportional to the harm that the targets cause as opposed to the, uh, you know, the squeaky wheel uh, Mm -hmm. problem there. You're responding to the squeak rather than the risk of the wheel falling off. So what what the targeting does is the first of the three T's in evidence-based policing that we teach in our course. It, It tells you where to put the resources, but it doesn't tell you what to do with them. And so analysts have a huge role in the second T, which is testing uh, what are the most effective uh, strategies. We've been looking at, for example, domestic violence protection orders, um, and now a new thing called the knife crime protective order, um, and trying to track whether using um, those um, orders uh, reduces the the future seriousness of crime of the people who get them. But if you just track it, 
without controlling for other variables, you can't really tell the effect of that new policy. So what you need is what's called a randomized control trial, a kind of clinical trial as they use it in medicine to test vaccines. You compare people who get the vaccine to people who don't, and then you look at their rate of contracting COVID or polio or whatever the disease is. That same logic, which we call the second T in evidence-based policing uh, of testing, uh, will tell you what's the best thing to do uh, about uh, a robbery problem surrounding uh, certain uh, um, commercial premises uh, in uh, a town in uh, New Hampshire or Canada or Washington, D.C. or wherever. And um, the, the tests that police officers are doing now as, as what we call pracademics, Renee Mitchell, the president of the American Society for Evidence-Based Policing, who retired as a police sergeant uh, with her PhD from Cambridge, uh, she says the pracademics can do more experiments working in a police agency than the academics ever can do. And I mm. think she's absolutely right. So we need analysts who want to go the extra mile, who want to take the course we're developing now on testing. Uh, but the current course is heavily focused on tracking, uh, sorry, on targeting. And the targeting will also lead to uh, tracking whether the police, for example, actually spend 15 minutes at a time in the hotspots that the testing research shows can substantially reduce crime in those hotspots, not just for an hour or two, but in Western Australia, up to four days uh, was the deterrent effect of uh, 15 minutes. It's very hard to get police patrols to stay in one street corner for 15 minutes. But if it's a high crime street corner, it can have a very strong residual effect and that the tracking of what time they spend in those locations is something else that we teach in this course right now. Mm -hmm. So we're teaching both the targeting and the tracking, uh, and we're developing a course on the testing that we hope to offer downstream. But we'd love to see much more engagement from North American uh, analysts in this online course that has live interaction with the tutors, and even the final assessment actually has two tutors in Cambridge who are uh, asking the analysts to go through various analytic procedures to demonstrate that they understand them and to make the certificate from the Cambridge Center for Evidence-Based Policing uh, a meaningful credential in crime analysis. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I think that's a, a, a great way to pool it as we continue into this field um, as analysts. I mean, there are several certifications available in, in, at least in the U.S., um, where California and Florida, I believe, are both two states that uh, put their analysts through uh, a state-level training and, and have them deemed certified. The IACA also has their own test um, to have people be uh, law enforcement certified analysts, uh, certified law enforcement analysts is what they call it. Um, and that lasts, you know, several years, at least on their level. I'm not sure about California and Florida, but, you know, just trying to get the information that's necessary to, to keep people running um, proper analytical product and, and helping out their agencies and communities is, I think, something that's definitely lacking, at least on, on this side of the world at this point. Um, can't speak to Canada. I, I probably would have to <laughs> talk to a couple of the, uh, the people up that way, but um, uh, it sounds as though they're more so in tune with that evidence-based practice than still uh, the U.S., unfortunately. Um, even though we we seemingly continue to, to try and push and, and increase uh, analytical capacity at some of the agencies. I know it's more of the metropolitan areas. I believe 
New York Police Department, New York City Police Department last year hired about 100 more crime analysts. Um, so obviously definitely pushing towards hopefully that realm of, of evidence-based, but definitely using uh, analytical tools to kind of keep their policing in check. I'm not sure exactly their goal, but obviously, you know, a, a reduction of crime uh, is always, uh, I think, most of our goals, but harm is, is definitely a good piece to start putting, uh, I think, into our tool belt. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, I was looking at some of this re- research from the 2016 one, and it was interesting to see the the, the tables and the pie charts that you, you implemented in there in terms of uh, crime in the UK and uh, 2002, 2003 of the number of crimes, and then what it looked like versus um, using uh, the, the weighted using the crime harm index and what it really gives you that I think visual that we all look for to say so really what are we looking at in terms of what we want to be uh, affecting right in, in terms of change and safety and the harm because you have um, the, the, the counts was criminal damage alone equaled about 21% Yet the harm index showed robbery at 26% as being, uh, you know, the the biggest harm in a sense that's uh, coming through. So it really gives you that different perspective on how how you're allocating the the um, limited resources of a police agency to what exactly, right? So that crime harm index and, and working for it is definitely great. So as I am um, talking about this, what what are some of the benefits of using the crime harm index um, that that analysts or agencies and or communities can see out of leveraging crime harm index implementation? Well, number one, it drives you to much more serious targets. And to the extent that there's a general movement away from reactive policing and one size fits all, you got a problem, we send a police car. Uh, a lot of agencies I hear saying, we don't want to do that. We want to do something else. Um, the question of what's the something else, uh, even if you're just trying to avoid COVID by not sending a police car to have somebody breathe on a police officer, mm-hmm. affect them so they'll die, um, which is a perfectly reasonable basis for having a, a Zoom conversation um, rather than um, taking an hour to drive to somebody uh, and to sit in their living room to hear the same words. So what would we do to decide which calls not to send a police car to or which calls that we must send a police car to. I think we would want to use a crime harm analysis to try to profile the information that comes in in the control room uh, to more accurately predict what are the cases where it was essential to have a police officer get there as soon as possible and what were the cases where it it wasn't. We don't track those outcomes from the decision to send a police car or not. Mm. But we are now doing some experiments um, that an analyst in Kent Police, 5,000 officers, she's randomly assigning um, a police car versus the call going immediately to a police officer who handles it all by phone, doesn't even have the video yet. Um, And what they're doing is they're resolving 100% of all of their uh, call-ins reasons within four hours, whereas if they try to send a police car, four days later they still have 40% unresolved. And a lot of those things never get resolved. So the customer satisfaction, the caller satisfaction is much higher by not sending a police car than by sending a police car. Hmm. And to do that kind of analysis, to get some control over the resources, to stop letting the 911 
number run the police force, but to have the police run their own force, the analyst is critical because the analyst can point out where we didn't send an officer, what bad things happened, so false negatives, as the statisticians would say, and where all the times where we did send an officer is completely unnecessary uh, and there wasn't any value added to that consumption of the officer's time that could have been spent investigating unreported serious domestic abuse that's uh, perhaps something you tracked through the medical records in the hospital. And now, that, again, Kent Police has been doing that. They're finding uh, massive numbers of serious injuries to women by their partners that were preceded by visits to the hospital um, that a pattern uh, clearly would have predicted, but that information wasn't being shared. Mm. Um, so if, if for public health and public safety to come together, we start looking at those kinds of facts and try to confront HIPAA, the American privacy laws about medical records, uh, in the best interest of the, the patients or even having patients sign consent to share the information with the police if it's um, uh, relevant to their health. Uh, there's all sorts of conversations that could come out of this kind of analysis of the more serious crimes that is only possible if you have a strategy that says, let's use analysts to not just add up the numbers at the end of the week. That's an accountant's job. Right. We don't want accountants. We want analysts to tell us where we're getting profits and where we're getting losses. And that's what you can do with the Crime Harm Index. That's what you can do with our training in our course on um, reducing serious violence, a course for police analysts. Yeah, that's. I think that's usually um, how a lot of analysts, thankfully, listen to this material is the, the fact that that is what they want to do. Just like an officer that joins a, a police force, an analyst joins as well in terms of, of wanting to make that difference, make that change, not just do... Um, like you said, an, an accountant's job and, and spit out numbers because, in a sense, w what does that mean and how are they actually helping at that point make um, that beneficial change to to somebody's life or um, the community in of itself? So, um, so with that, any um, any other pieces that uh, you want to bring up that the 2021 had um, over the 2016 research that was done? Well, one of the great things about the 2020 uh, consensus statement on the Crime Harm Index uh, is that it uh, clearly focuses on measuring public safety by a reliable and consistent method that uh, not only pulls out proactive policing, which can vary from year to year depending on budget availability and so on, but also pulls out historical offenses. Uh, the British police, and to some extent uh, the Canadian police, I think, have been inundated with child sex abuse cases from uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, and they get logged in in the year in which they're reported. Mm -hmm. So it's completely misleading about how dangerous your community is if you're loading it up with crime harm or crime counts even uh, for, with things that didn't happen that particular year. So the statistical goal is to have the crime reports to the police not only given a weighting for their severity, but also coming f consistently from victims and witnesses about what happened in that year, not the year it was reported in the year when it actually occurred. And if you get a report from a 20, um, 2008 crime in 2020, then you could go back and change the crime count for 2008 
but you don't inflate the crime count for 2020. Right. That's definitely in the 2020 uh, crime harm index consensus statement, and we call it the historic crimes harms index, the HCHI. Um, so we're pulling out historic crimes, we're pulling out police generated detections of crime, um, and we're looking at these things separately as parallel uh, dials on the dashboard uh, and not throwing them all together where you can't interpret anything. If you're trying to fly, fly a plane by putting together historic crimes, police generated crimes, and current reports of current crimes by victims and witnesses, it would be like putting together the, the altitude, the airspeed, and the temperature uh, and just adding it up into one big number. How's the pilot going to interpret that? Right. You've got to separate those indicators, and, and that's what the 2020 paper shows how to do. So I think that the stuff you can put out for your podcast listeners gives them the tools that they need to uh, at least propose to the leaders of their forces uh, to, to if, especially if anybody's frustrated about resources and the need to set priorities, that this provides a complete system uh, with an alternative vision for how to use policing to prevent harm, which is what Sir Robert Peel uh, was uh, all about in creating the Metropolitan Police, and it's why they named Peel, Ontario after him. Of course, he was also a, a prime minister. Um, and while I'm talking about uh, Ontario, I want to mention a related point here. Mm -hmm. And that is that we are, we're not only training analysts, we're training sergeants and inspectors and others who get the same material as the analysts, but we don't make them crunch the numbers. Mm -hmm. What that does is to put the operational leaders and the analysts on the same page. So you don't have the, uh, the leaders not knowing what questions to ask and the analysts not getting asked the right questions to answer. <laughs> Uh, if you have them both take the same course, uh, then there's much better chance that this stuff's going to get implemented and it's going to change the way you do policing. So I want to call out, shout out, praise Barry, Ontario, where we now have uh, in, in a not very large department city of 200,000 people, uh, we, we've got uh, something on the order of 15 people coming to our online course, uh, being taught you know any time, any hour, any day. Um, but with appointments with the tutors for live conversations. But all these folks in Barrie, um, Ontario, are getting uh, on the same page with this evidence-based policing framework with the use of uh, the Crime Harm Index uh, strategy using the Canadian crime severity uh, scores. And I'm just really optimistic that the leadership of this medium-sized police agency is going to be able to turn the boat uh, around because of the critical mass of people, both operationally and analytically, who are working together on it. So it's not just an invitation for your listeners uh, who are analysts to come take the course. It's an invitation to get them to try to persuade some operational leaders to take the course as well. Uh, we can't have you sit in the same classrooms because you might infect each other with COVID, but you can <laughs> certainly take the same course online and then talk about it uh, socially distanced with your masks on whenever you get the chance. Yes. Yeah. They, um, uh, Barry, Ontario, if I remember, um, correctly, there's definitely been some, some evidence-based policing work done. And I think at the time, if I remember correctly, it was, uh, with Dr. Laura Huey, who was the, um, well, not only the first guest of the first episode of Neuroknowledge, but she 
um, was uh, executive director of the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. So not sure how that relationship formed, but I, I was even going to say that um, anybody in North America who's listening and then signs up for the course, uh, I will unfortunately probably have to guarantee you that uh, the Canadians will be uh, flocking more so to your course than probably our own, uh, U.S. counterparts at that point. I, I hope I get proven wrong. I hope that there's an increase in, in uh, U.S. representation in those courses as well. But, um, again, it, it seems to still echo more strongly north of the U.S. Uh, of the evidence-based practices and, and policing and using and leveraging uh, research from academia to to kind of get us into a, a great groove um, uh, with the evidence-based policing and practices and um, you know, problem-oriented and community-oriented and everything else that we, we continue to find from research material that gets shared. Um, so as we wrap up here, I want to ask you, Larry, if there's a call to action, and hopefully it's uh, hopefully more U.S. representation, but <laughs> I'll well, let you, well, let you well, do On that, that point, Nick, I didn't want to contradict your prediction because uh, you may well be right, but I do want to give credit to the learner one, the first person who took any of our courses online, uh, Lieutenant Alan Ballard from uh, the Burlington, North Carolina Police Department nice. was the first person to actually sign up and take the course, and uh, he said some very nice things about it. Uh, if you want to call Alan, I'm sure he'd be delighted to hear from you. Um, but what we're hoping is that we can get more departments that have both the analysts and the police leaders, and Alan's very much in a leadership position, uh, get them both to take the, the, their respective courses and get them on the same page. So the call to action would be to um, course or no course to figure out how to adopt the most convenient crime harm index and put it into operation as an alternative way of producing the, you know, calling the accounting reports on a monthly basis hmm. uh, where you either generate the numbers by hand, God help you, or uh, just program a computer to send out the same numbers to you based on the, the, the tabulation of the data set as it changes every month. If it's the latter, you can certainly set it up to do the crime harm index calculations. Right. And in Canada, it's very easily done with the crime severity scores. Uh, in the United States, any of the states that have sentencing guidelines, uh, like uh, Minnesota, um, for sure, uh, California, um, um, North Carolina, other examples. And if you don't have a guideline in your own state, um, you know, the U.S. is, is a pretty tolerant place. They might say, well, what the heck, we'll, we'll borrow the Minnesota guidelines because here in Wisconsin, we're not all that different from mm. Minnesota. I don't know. Wisconsin may have its own guidelines. If, if you can't use uh, the guidelines for whatever reason, um, uh, you could also just use the Cambridge uh, English sentencing guidelines, since after all, the common law in the United States is all based on English legal principles. And again, what matters is not that it's the exact weight of punishment, but that it's a consistent and reliable index. Yeah. And with the Cambridge method, we actually have 700 and... 25 or maybe now it's up to 748 offense types on our website at the Cambridge Center for Evidence-Based Policing. So just put in Cambridge EDP and then look for the crime harm index scores. You can download the spreadsheet. It's got the number of days imprisonment uh, recommended for first offenders for all of these different offense types. 
and if you can correspond them to whatever offense categories you've got in your own state, you can generate a crime harm index score approach to uh, once a month ranking the most serious uh, offenders active in your community, ranking the most vulnerable victims who are suffering the most harm in the last three months, the last six or 12 months as a, as a rolling uh, uh, total. And uh, something that's much more stable is looking at the harm at places. And um, this brings us back again to a benefit of using this approach. Mm -hmm. What we know from the crime harm index assigned to places is that it actually identifies different locations from the crime count hotspots. So if your hotspots are just based on the numbers of crimes uh, or even the numbers of crimes of a certain type, you can get even further if you take a crime harm index approach to places where we know that the places tend to stay pretty stable on that list for two to three years. Unlike the offenders who come in and out, in part because the most serious ones get put in prison, thank God, um, and, and the victims uh, may come in and out uh, depending on, you know, they're growing up. A lot of them are adolescents, sadly. Um, but the, um, the places can be very stable. And once you do uh, uh, your first analysis of harm spots versus hot spots in a community, using uh, street addresses or street segments or even um, hexagons that the computers can program for you. Um, what, what you are able to do is to take a completely new look at crime and really show how important it is to have an analyst uh, taking care of uh, the decision making because without the analysis what you're getting is what Daniel Kahneman in his book Thinking Fast and Slow uh, calls what you see is not all there is, which he calls Wiseyati. Mm. Um, what people do in terms of assigning hotspots patrols, as we've seen in, in studies in two different places in the UK, is they miss the target. They're assigning patrols to go to places that they think are dangerous, but they're not. And they're missing the places that are dangerous that are never getting patrol assignments. Only the analyst knows for sure. There's a 1950s ad only your hairdresser knows whether or not you dye your hair. Uh, only your analyst knows for sure that the places you're policing intensively are actually harmful. Right. And if you don't have the analyst check it out, you could be wasting your time big time and moreover missing the chance to help protect people. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a fantastic point. And uh, <clears throat> I, I will leave it on your words, not, not mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's definitely good. So um, as a... Uh, as we close out here, um, just to recap for everybody, there will be in the show notes the um, two research materials from Dr. Sherman as well as um, links to the course and uh, the Cambridge EBP Center. So we will have that material so everybody can go consume that as necessary and, uh, and reach out as they need to, uh, and go from there. So with that, uh, Larry, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And that was, uh, hopefully enlightening to a lot of, um, not just analysts, but law enforcement and other people within, uh, the, the North America, especially the U S looking to kind of drive and change police work to be more effective and approach it in this sense of, uh, of, harm index as well so thank you very much for being on the show thanks for inviting me not a problem have a good day thank you too
Another great episode of Nero Knowledge. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And remember to share, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite service. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at nick at neroca.com. It is nick at neroca.com.